Welcome back, friends. This is the Just for a Closer Walk podcast, and believe it or not, we are at episode 10. Woo! Pull out the balloons and the streamers. We made it to double digits. I never had a doubt. <laughs> I had every doubt. Uh, my name is Joel Osland, and I uh, appreciate you so much coming back and spending some time with me here in your day. And uh, this whole podcast, and uh, there is actually a blog that goes by the same name over at uh, justforaclosterwalk.com. And uh, both of these are really just, uh, the whole intention is just to try to, to give you some useful training, some useful teaching, some useful insight um, in addressing some of the more difficult questions potentially that we come across in the Christian faith and seeking to draw closer in our walk with Christ and uh, more fully engaging with him and worshiping him with our minds as well as uh, with everything else. And we talk about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And uh, you know, some people really struggle with worshiping in spirit, and unfortunately, some people really struggle with worshiping in truth. So it's uh, it's really important for both. And uh, we're intentionally kind of focusing on the truth element here a little bit more, um, but both are important. And I encourage you to continue drawing closer and leaning in on that walk. So we started out last session, last podcast episode, kind of addressing this question of Gnosticism and uh, really going through and addressing uh, very specifically the, the so-called Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic Gospel. And we established that it is uh, it's definitely not uh, deserve any space. It doesn't belong in the Bible at all. It's very um, contradictory. It's very opposed to the scriptural canon. Um, so if you have any questions on that, just go back and listen to uh, last episode, and you'll get all caught up. And we did, uh, we, last time we kind of wrapped up by starting to build a little bit of a framework of understanding what the scriptural canon, the actual Judeo-Christian Bible, how it's composed. And uh, we're going to kind of pick up on that today and really dive into uh, understanding what were the tests for canonicity and also um, a little bit more specifically, how was the canon, the scriptural canon formed? So what was the, uh, the process of that? And you do if you you know if you just kind of watch uh, movies or if you just look into you know pop uh, books or pop culture references, you might have all these weird thoughts about oh well you know I watched the Da Vinci Code so that means that I understand you know all this hidden history that never existed. And, um, <laughs> by the way, Dan Brown himself was like, hey, this isn't meant at all to be like historical or it doesn't have any. You know, it's not meant to like raise up any uh, debates or you know any tension or anything like that. He wasn't trying to make any commentary. It was just a a story that he made up. So his intention wasn't that. And if you got that out of it, go ahead and get that thought out of your mind. <laughs> it's not helpful. Um, but we're going to get in there and, and actually understand what was going on and what was the process to uh, arrive with the uh, the Bible that we have with us now the actual canon of scripture. Um, so just a really, really brief recap um, on the last couple of lines from uh, last session. We, we were just kind of looking at the definition of the word canon. And that actually comes from two words. Uh, it comes from a Hebrew word, kane, as well as the Greek word, kanon. And basically it translates to measuring stick, um, or very classically to a reed, which was a measuring stick. And just as a reed could serve as a measuring standard, so the biblical canon was a measuring standard for faith and practice. 
people could compare their lives to what the Bible required. And furthermore, the word canon could denote a standard to which the Bible writings themselves, themselves must conform. So the tests for canonicity. As God revealed his word through ordinary people, it became important to know which books came from him and which books reflected only human opinion. A consensus emerged as to what constituted proper tests for canonicity. The, the tests focused on three factors. There was the authorship, there was audience, and there was also the teaching itself. Uh, each of the three factors commands further exploration and understanding. So the first test is that of authorship. A text must have been written by a prophet or a prophetically gifted person. In the Hebrew, or Israelite nation, there were three types of prophecy. The first type of prophecy was fulfilled during the prophet's lifetime. A good example of type 1 prophecy is Elijah's uh, prophesying of the land having a drought, which we see in 1 Kings 17, and that came true immediately. There was a little bit over three years of drought. And Elijah's credibility instantly established him as a real prophet. So type 1 prophecy was perhaps the single most important of the three in terms of establishing credibility. Uh, as well as validating true prophets and condemning the false prophets. Type 1 was also the most important to the prophets' contemporaries, but speculation and disbelief can easily blossom even just one generation later. Skeptics arise and claim that the written accounts were probably written after the events and recorded so as to provide false credibility to a false prophet. The importance of Type 2 and Type 3 prophecies then are recognized. So Type 2 and Type 3 prophecies were fulfilled after the prophet's lifetime. The subsequent generations would, in many cases, see these prophecies fulfilled in their own lifetimes and then reconfirm the prophet's legitimacy. The accounts, or this accounts for the large majority of the Old Testament canon. The Council of Jamnia, which was in the late first century AD, for example, officially confirmed and endorsed the books of the Old Testament that were believed to have been true all along. It's imperative to recognize that the council did not determine what books belonged in the Old Testament, but merely confirmed what was already believed and established. Much of this consensus is likely due to the fulfillment of type 1, 2, and 3 prophecies. In recent centuries, skeptics have again woven seeds of doubt in many minds as to the legitimacy of these prophets. Uh, many important texts, ancient texts, were already available and confirmed to have been composed in the early centuries AD, and some even as early as 200 BC. And among these texts were the Masoretic text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, and the Targums. The challenge with these texts is that the originals are no longer available, and most of the oldest copies available today date around 1100 AD. For the Masoretic text and the Samaritan Pentateuch, um, and then a little bit that are older, uh, 8,300 to 500 for the Septuagint, and most likely somewhere in the range of 500 to 1,000 AD, uh, for, with a few exceptions around 150 um, for the Targums. So skeptics again asserted that these prophecies were probably written years after they had occurred in order to give more credibility to these prophets. In 1947, however, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in the Qumran Caves, was a massive game changer as these scrolls date, uh, many of them around 1 and 200 BC and others um, even much older, uh, potentially 300 and I think there's actually even a couple as old as 500 uh, BC. Many prophecies have continued to be fulfilled much more recently than these early records, which means that these prophecies cannot possibly have been falsely written afterwards. 
and so the skeptic's argument dissolves. Herein lies the distinguishing characteristics between type 2 and type 3 prophecies. Type 2 prophecies were fulfilled after the prophet's lifetime, but still earlier than our earliest copies. Brilliant examples include prophecies found in the book of Daniel. Through the interpretation of a dream given to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the rise and fall of four great nations is foretold. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. In the eighth chapter of Daniel, Alexander the Great, Greece, is prophesied as to, as is the division of Greece among his four generals after his death. These events took place centuries after Daniel's lifetime, um, but around 330 to 300 BC, they still precede a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, type 3 prophecies were fulfilled long after the prophet's lifetime and more recently than our available copies. Around 600 BC, Daniel prophesied the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. Several aspects of this are amazing. First, the first temple in Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. This took place in 586 BC under King Nebuchadnezzar. Second, the second temple was built and completed in 516 BC. Third, and most astonishingly, the second temple was destroyed in AD 70 under Emperor Nero of Rome. Equally, if not more impressive, this prophecy is delivered by Ezekiel, both in chapters 4 and 36, foretelling thousands of years in advance of Israel's return to the Promised Land in AD 1948. There used to be confusion and misunderstanding about Jeremiah's prophecy of a return after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, but in Isaiah 11, we see the remedy uh, to those perceived issues. Uh, recognizing the Levitical precepts in Leviticus 26 and converting the time into our modern Gregorian and Julian calendars, the result is stunning and without contest. So that's all the, the question of authorship. So the second test is the test of audience. The author may have written the book to one audience, but if it was God's word, all who read it could profitably apply its teachings to their lives. The Apostle Paul reemphasized this point in his second epistle to Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. See that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Consider even in modern culture the vast recognition and the practice of the Ten Commandments, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. One was written to a specific nation, yet bears weight all around the world thousands of years later. And the other was spoken as an illustration to a relatively small crowd in Palestine, but continues to impact the world as a teaching about how to be a good neighbor to others, regardless of race, religious, ethnicity, and so forth. And the third test has sifted the most chaff of would-be scripture with the greatest ease as it is the test of teaching. In order to be considered canonical, a text must have been written in accordance with previous revelation. New revelation could reveal further information about God's plan and purpose, but it would never run counter to or contradict the old. For example, the Pentateuch, or Torah, contains teachings that there is only one God, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Whenever an alleged prophet would arise with such claims to additional deities or attempting to deify angelic beings, for example, the prophet would be dismissed as a heretic, and the writing sifted out of canon canonicity. Under this test, it was quickly and easily understood uh, the non-canonicity, <laughs> easy for me to say, the non-canonicity 
of the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, so we've established the tests for canonicity. So how was the canon itself actually formed? Well, let's start off with a, a quick reference here to Deuteronomy 19.15. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. As was previously established, the Old Testament canon was not determined by any council or official group, but the Council of Jamnia merely served to officially confirm the books that were already believed to be scripture by the masses for centuries or more. The New Testament followed a similar process. The early church spread the gospel message using the most common method of communication available, and that was orally. The apostles testified to what they had seen with their own eyes and explained the events with scripture from the Old Testament, often referred to as the Law and the Prophets. The Apostle Paul was a particularly well-spoken and a bold individual in his deliveries of the gospel message. After just a few short years, however, bizarre claims and statements began to circulate. Similar, uh, if you think about that game Telephone, uh, you have to pass a message all the way around a circle, and each person tries to remember what they've heard, and you're kind of whispering it, and by the time you get to the end, everything just sounds bizarre. Paul and some of the others learned that these strange teachings and circulation uh, were going around, and he wrote several letters to various churches in order to address each church's doctrinal misunderstandings. The other books of the New Testament were soon recorded for referencing uh, in the future generations. The various churches remained in contact and had a consensus regarding the sacred texts, because access to written scrolls or papyrus, etc., was much less common and much more difficult to obtain Many churches would only have a single copy, or in many cases, only uh, maybe even an incomplete copy of the sacred writings. Many people would have limited access to these texts, or would hear residual bizarre teachings circulating and proceed to write these incomplete or inaccurate interpretations down. Whether this was accomplished in pure or impure motives will never be known. It is important to realize, however, that the church continued in consensus and addressed false teachings as they arose. The New Testament canon was not determined in some council one day by one group of people, contrary to the misleading claims uh, that we see in uh, Dan Brown's book, as well as other people of influence. The Council of Nicaea in AD 325, it actually consisted of 318 bishops plus Emperor Constantine, assembled with the goal of unifying a universal or a Catholic church doctrine, and voted over the course of more than a month on 20 different canons, church rules, uh, but none of these actually dealt with the sacred writings. Fortunately, in the statements of Eusebius, uh, we see an excellent portrait of the state of the New Testament canon in the early 4th century AD, and distinguish four classes of the sacred uh, books of the Christians. The first is the homologamina, which were the universally acknowledged books across the Christian church. These included the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, as well as Acts, uh, along with 14 Pauline epistles, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews, as well as 1st Peter, 1st John, and Revelation. The second category was the Antilogomena, which were the controverted books, yet still familiar to most in the church. These books include James, Jude, 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John. In some accounts, also would uh, kind of put Hebrews or maybe Revelation in this category. Uh, not most, only, only a couple. Uh, 
Hebrews because it's it cannot be specifically traced to Paul in the way that his other letters can be. And Revelation because there's some speculation about whether the author was the same John who authored the gospel and epistles. And the third category then is what they called the spurious books, which were considered to be pious and useful, but not canonical. So these would be some that you've probably never heard of. Um, things like the Acts of Paul, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Revelation of Peter, and the Gospel according to the Hebrews. The fourth and final category is the heretical books, which were to be set aside altogether as worthless and impious. So these books included the Gnostic writings, such as the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Matthias. Church councils, or synods, did affirm the sacred texts of the New Testament, of course. Um, the first church council to rule on a list of quote-unquote inspired writings to be read in the church was at the Synod of Hippo, which was around 393 AD. And this is known because of its reference uh, being referenced during the third Synod of Carthage, which was in 397 AD. Both synods include the exact list of the 27 New Testament documents that are found in modern Bibles. There are incomplete lists that can be found much earlier. Citations of Clement of Alexandria, 195 to 202 AD, as well as Tertullium, 205 to 225 AD, include references to most of the New Testament doctrines, uh, documents, excuse me, uh, as well as the Muratorian Canon, which was uh, we see that around 170 to 200 AD, also includes most of the 27 New Testament documents, um, 22 to be exact. Most of the Gnostic texts were rejected because they contained too many bizarre passages. One important factor for any document to be affirmed as orthodox or inspired was how much acceptance it received among the churches in the various regions. Perhaps it was inspired by the Deuteronomy passage previously mentioned. Perhaps it was inspired by Proverbs 18.17. The first percent in his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. Whatever the inspiration or cause, this element is certainly unique to Christianity. No other religious text or sacred writing encourages such a commitment to the pursuit of truth. Perhaps this, among its other unique elements, provides sufficient cause for consideration. So in conclusion, the critical difference between the New Testament Gospels and the Gnostic Gospels is clearly recognized and that the New Testament Gospel is profound taking the complicated and making it profoundly easy to understand. The Gnostic texts are just not easy to grasp. The Gospel of Thomas is not included in the canon of Scripture, and that is the correct answer. The Gospel of Thomas has no place among the sacred texts of Scripture, has, has been thoroughly proven. In closing, consider the words of R.A. Baker. The New Testament developed or evolved over the course of the first two to three hundred years of Christian history. No one particular person made the decision. The decision was not made at a church council. The particular writings that became those of the New Testament gradually came into focus and became the most trusted and beneficial of all early church writings. And there we have it. So hopefully that was a, a useful insight looking a little bit into uh, what is Gnosticism and how did it apply to a lot of early writings and uh, maybe false teachings that the early church had to confront and address. And uh, I know it's a little bit more tricky for us here in our 21st century culture and context, 
being so far removed from these events and uh, having to really just rely a lot on historical text and uh, and logic. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, we do actually have an amazing uh, access to just so many excellent resources and uh, hopefully this was helpful for you. So if you're interested in some further reading, uh, a few recommendations would be um, there's a two-book series. It's actually textbooks. Uh, one is called Encountering the Old Testament, and the other is called Encountering the New Testament. And I believe there's uh, quite a few new editions, uh, probably since the ones that I've used. Um, those were really helpful. Uh, of course, Dr. Henrietta Mears has a lot of great work. Um, kind of a good reference guide, I would say, is called What is the Bible All About or What the Bible's All About. And then another one that I've been really, uh, really loving is a, a pretty massive work um, uh, put together by Philip Schaff back in, I want to say it was the late 1700s, 1800s, somewhere in that range. Um, and his is called a, uh, The History of the Christian Church. So there's a lot of really good detail and uh, information about church councils and synods and kind of the whole uh, process for um, the uh, canonization process. So again, I hope this was helpful. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next podcast episode. And if any of this was helpful, or if you liked it, or if you want to share it with a friend, uh, please do so, as well as uh, feel free to head over and check out justforaclosterwalk.com, and you can see the, uh, the blog entries as well. Um, as always, feel free to like, subscribe, uh, if you want to have direct access to that content and be alerted when it's available. And again, be blessed.